Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business Podcast. This is episode 175. Today's guest is a repeat guest, and Todd Ganos is on the show, and he hasn't been on the show for almost three years now, and Todd is the one that I saw present years ago, and after he had described his different tax structures, asset protection, deal structure strategies, realized that we left millions of dollars on the table from a slew of different things that we could have done differently from getting our advisors to collaborate on the deal structure, asset protection, tax planning, estate planning, all these different things that co-mingle together when you're trying to get a deal done. Todd is one of the smartest people that I know as far as tax strategies, asset protection, deal structures work. He has done almost, I think, a hundred private letter rulings, which he's going to talk about in the show, which is a pre-planned submission to the IRS on your tax structure and your estate plan as it relates to your business and your exit. When I called him for some questions for some of our clients years ago before the new tax plan got put into place, he had literally read the House and the Senate tax bills front to back before they were even approved. I would literally call Todd an engineer and an architect based on the exit that you're trying to accomplish. And the purpose of having him on the show today is because in our fifth principle, which is the team of advisors, The goal behind this principle is to get all of your advisors to collaborate and come up with creative ideas on how to optimize your deal structure, the tax plan, the estate plan, the wealth plan, all in light of where you're trying to go. You can't be a specialist and understand everything as it relates to each of your professional's designations, but what you can do is you can hire the right people that are the best in their field, that know how to collaborate, that can put their comp plans aside to optimize the, the strategy and the plan that you want to get. Again, this costs us millions of dollars. What Todd is going to discuss today and what we're going to be talking about is different stories and different situations that have have presented himself themselves in his career on 
people losing millions of dollars because they didn't get people to collaborate. They didn't think ahead as far as their entity structures, as far as the deal structures. And as we pick up steam about a third of the way in, we start talking about different ways to get your advisors to collaborate and different situations that you can help facilitate to optimize your plan. And that if you're doing this one, two, three years ahead of time, how you can make sure that you're getting the best outcome, saving the most amount in taxes, and then building the plan that gets you what you want. What I love about the fifth principle and hiring the right team of advisors that sits next to you, that protects you and collaborates to optimize your plan is you don't have to be a tax strategist. You don't have to be an estate strategist. You just know how to lead and manage people. And the whole goal is that you have the right people that get it, want it, and have the capacity. If you've outgrown your advisors and have not replaced them, it could cost you your happiness and a bunch of money. If you want to put a plan into place, check out one of our two-day growth and exit boot camps. It takes two case studies that are $10 million in revenue, a million in EBITDA, and we take the whole two days and we walk through business valuations, how to increase the value of your company, differences between private equity, ESOPs, third parties, strategic buyers, and how the deal structures work, and then ways to hire the team advisors to optimize your plan. And you'll walk out understanding how to focus on value creation with the end in mind, knowing that you can use your EBITDA to reinvest in your business to get the outcome that you want. It's 5,000 bucks and half off for everybody after the first ticket. And if you want to know more about it, check out it on the website at arcona.io or reach out to me and I'm happy to walk you through the agenda and then what you'll get as an outcome of walking out of that bootcamp. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Todd Ganos. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Good morning, Todd. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good, and this is awesome because I've only had a couple people on the show twice, you and Ken Sanginario being two of them, and uh, both, uh, you know, you actually, I think you introduced me to Ken after I met you four years ago, so we're kind of doing a little bit of a time travel here, and I'm excited because as you and I were just talking about before the recording is... You know, as we look at, you know, what we're doing at Arcona with the five growth and exit principles and talking about the team of advisors, preliminary due diligence, and you literally changed my perspective on the things that are possible after I saw your presentation at that EPI event a couple of years, probably three years ago. So the, the listeners that might not have listened to that episode, when you and I were talking about your expertise and some of this stuff, I've learned a lot over the years but let's maybe give a, well, we can kind of take the episode in chunks of like, let's give you your background and then kind of talk about kind of what you guys are doing. And then we've got a lot of stories about how wealth taxes, legal deal structures, net proceeds are all stuff that they all are intertwined dramatically. And you have a very unique skill set of understanding how they all impact each other. And you're doing some really interesting work to help people I mean, make more money than they could if they hadn't gone your direction. So, you know, you've got a super interesting uh, background, Todd. So maybe just kind of give the listeners, like, how did you, uh, what are some of the milestones that got you where you are today? Okay. Well, okay. Thanks. Uh, So actually I, um, I started out um, in my early career, 
I was actually an Air Force officer, and I uh, credit the, the military for a lot of my just personal uh, management style. I had so many opportunities in the military to uh, lead and manage and so forth. But subsequent to my military service, I became a business owner. And I have also both acquired a business and I've sold a business. So I've kind of, as the business owner, I kind of know what it feels like. (laughs) And, uh, you know, through all of the, well, I won't say heart wrenching, but all the, oh, that's what um, it is. You can, you can be honest. Yeah. (laughs) the, The, the anxieties that occur is, is this deal going to go forward? Is it not, you know, what are the due diligence issues that come up and so forth? So I've, been through it both on the buy side and the sell side. My my passion has always been about taxes, and and so I I have a law degree. I have an advanced law degree in taxation. I've uh, passed a CPA exam in one state. And early on, you know, it's not like you you just sort of pick stuff up and say, okay, well. You know, now I'm I'm doing this. It really takes years and years and years, uh, no matter <laughs> yeah. what one's discipline is, to really get to a point where they're really proficient. The other thing that I feel about any discipline is, is that you can't, like so many professionals, they just say, "Well, you know, I got my meal ticket, and and that's it. I'm done." For someone to really be top of game, top of the profession, it's a constant process of always learning. You're never there. You always have to, like a business owner, and the business owners listening today will understand this. As a business owner, you're always thinking, what have I have yet to do? What's the next thing I got to do? I can't like that. Okay, everything's on cruise control. Okay. Well, with professional advisors, it needs to be the same thing. In terms of, mm-hmm. you know, what's the next thing I need to learn about? And as you and I have discussed, you know, there, I mean, it's unfortunate, but there are a lot of professional advisors there in whatever discipline who, you know, they're sort of the first type I mentioned where, you know, they have their meal, meal ticket, ticket and they kind of, they mm-hmm. just sort of do stuff. But when it comes to the more advanced things, they may not even be aware of some things. Um, and, and we can talk about that as we, as we go. So, but what my team focuses on now is advanced planning, uh, tax planning, and, and you can throw in the estate planning in there too, for families that own middle market companies. So, you know, companies that maybe have revenue of about 10 million up to maybe a couple hundred million. That's what we do. And so when we go through this, we're not really trying to look through it as a lens of, well, okay, I'm just a tax planner. I'm trying to look at it in terms of, you know, what an accountant's going to look at, what a business best practices advisor like yourself is, is going to look at, or even the M&A advisor is. So we try to look to bring all of these disciplines together. Whereas in so many cases, you'll find that a professional advisor within a given discipline, that's sort of like their thing and they're sort of unaware of anything that happens outside of of their little sphere. 
Mm-hmm. So and, and you so the, to, I'll, I'll kind of set some of the foundation here, Tab, because you know, like I said, you you were one of the people that dramatically changed my level of. <laughs> I'm trying to think of self awareness of how little I knew. <laughs> Because I was watching your presentation and then I realized how little other people knew around me. And it was just a lot of this blindly in the blind. And, you know, a couple of the things when I say setting the foundation for some of our conversations is that you, when you talk about looking through the lens of all these people, you know, we have our five principles. And then I kind of, I explain that once the owner knows what they want from the first principle, then they know what their financial targets are. So I need, you know, net this much, this lifetime income, this is my the, the value of my company. What are the different exit options? So they might be marching towards an ESOP or a private equity or a third party. And then they've got the ways to increase the value of the company using Ken's tools. And then we have the team of advisors. So for the first time, you should have all your advisors that are looking at the same map and the same blueprint. So with that being said, you know, when you did your presentation, that's where I mean, I literally, Todd, still give it my keynote where if I would have done different things that you had suggested, we'd have saved millions of dollars net. <laughs> but it's different. What you're talking about, what we're about to talk about in the show is different than the internal value building inside of a business. This is technical from the entity structures, the taxes, the real estate, different entities from different companies or different, you know, if they got different cult companies. And I, I'll give my example of what I say to people where I had this client, and if they're listening, they'll know who it is, is you know, they have probably, oh gosh, seven or eight houses, I think, that are they're building commercial buildings, and they've got you know, a couple different entities, and the parents' net worth outside the business is pretty significant. Yet they came in and they're working on a family transition, and then the father was like, I want to move to Florida today. And then it will, (laughs) (laughs) right? And that, and I say it ripples into the wealth plan, the tax plan, the real estate plan, the insurance plan, the estate. It's everything. And so when people don't think about the stuff that we're about to talk talk about, it's not just the due diligence from a buyer's perspective on the operations, but it's how much money you leave at the table that could impact whether you decide to do a certain exit at a certain timeline that can make or break the entire situation. So, you know, before we jump into the kind of maybe give your overall um, opinion about how all these different designations tie into different outcomes that people might be trying to march towards. Well, I mean, so where do you begin? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one thing, one thing that we, we talked about, uh, pre- you know, previously is the, the need for lead time and doing all of this planning, okay? It takes time, whether it's just the, you know, the value growth proposition, it takes time to make the appropriate changes within a company, capture that value if you're doing that. If it's taxes, it takes, and it sort of depends on what the specific uh, objectives are. Like you were saying, you have to know what those objectives are. And that will then dictate how much lead time you're going to need because it says either how uh, more straightforward or more involved a scenario might be. But what you just said about dad wanting to move the Florida, <laughs> okay, I got to tell you. So it, when, when anyone asks a business, business owner, so when do you think you're going to sell? And they're going to say, every single one of them are probably going to say three to five years. Okay, That's just, <laughs> sure. that's just the way it is. It's no the matter who asks them. Three to five years, them. right? 
But when you then talk with, if it's a, let's say an investment banker, what then happens? And so, uh, so actually take a step back when, when the business owner says, oh, three to five years, they think, oh, well, this particular plan or that particular plan, I have time to implement. So I'm going to put it off. Okay. But then now you have the conversation with the investment banker and the investment banker says that, yeah, they say three to five years, but one of two things typically happens. And that is an out of the blue offer comes in and it's, it's juicy enough where you can't really refuse it. But then you haven't had time to mm-hmm. put any of your value enhancement or tax planning things into place. The second thing relates to dad moving to Florida <laughs> is, it, you know, look, every business has its, has its challenges. And so it, it comes to a point where whoever you know, the business owner is, they roll out of bed one day and says, you know, I'm, I'm done. done. I'm done. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, just sell it. Just get it sold. And so, but they haven't done those things, whether either to enhance the value or to preserve uh, value on taxes. They don't do it. Um, and it's funny. Uh, so I should actually mention that, uh, you know, I have the Forbes column. So if you, someone mm-hmm. just Google my name, Todd Ganos, uh, Forbes, uh, a lot of the subjects that, we may talk about here today or others would be on on my Forbes column uh, online. But yeah, that's the thing is, is exactly what you said. It takes time. And yet one wild card that's in play is the business owner gets a out of the blue offer that they feel they just need to take, or they wake up one day and said, I, I just, I can't take it. I need to sell. And, and those two lights too, Todd, like which, because I, th- I think we'll just for, for the listeners so they understand where we're going to be going with this is that, you know, we've, we, I've talked a lot, I talk a lot about on the show of our fourth principle, which is enhance and increase value, which is, you know, the, the operational stuff from strategic planning to the finances, to sales, marketing stuff. That's, you know, we're going to put that to the side when we talk about the principle number five with the team of advisors and optimizing the tax plan, the deal structure and the stuff that you understand too, because you know, you you can't do the value enhancing things last minute, but also it's the stuff that you're we're going to talk about from the different deal structures and the corporate structures and all that stuff. Where if you get an out of the blue offer, I mean, like all that stuff goes away, which might impact your yeah. second principle of your financial target. So if if you're kind of going back and forth, or should I or shouldn't I sell? And it, and it's the difference of a couple million bucks. And literally some of the stuff that we're going to talk about could make it where it, you would want to sell if you got that offer, had you done these things. So it's, it's maybe explain how, I, mean, I don't know if there, yeah. are there specific examples of like how the deal structure or the, you know, the taxes, corporate structure, different kind of a couple of different examples of how it ripples into all those and how it actually could impact what the taxes that you might pay and what goes into your bank account. Uh, sure. And so there, I mean, just to give two examples, that are, are real fresh examples that have just come up uh, very recently, I think are worth uh, talking about. So uh, with, with one of the families we serve, they own a number of businesses across the United States. And they were in a process of, oh, and so we actually, for this family, we have all the trust in place. We have things domiciled in Nevada, even though the you know, the businesses themselves are, you know, somewhere out there in the various states. But in terms of the top level ownership, we have the trust set up and 
Everything's in place. Well, but then, and so we've done the planning early, but then the family says they have four businesses that they're going to sell. And in one particular case, the business is located in one particular state. And the business is organized as an LLC. And you say, okay, great. But because the, of the, the way that the ownership was set up and how the transaction was going to take place, the, that sale would have been pulled into taxation by that particular state. And so on this case, it was an easier fix. <laughs> but when we got word of this, we said, hey, hold the phone. And it took us basically just an afternoon. My gosh, it took us an afternoon, but we were able to uh, do certain things, uh, open certain bank accounts. We keep certain, you know, uh, uh, entity, uh, (laughs) sort of standby entities uh, ready to go (laughs) in case of such emergencies when we need to adapt a structure. So we're agile in our planning. But the net result of this is had they uh, not given us the heads up, it, they would have been sucked into the state to the tune of $2 million of tax. Okay? So even though you think you have stuff set up, is there was this blind spot, and we caught it, and literally in an afternoon, we had it solved. Now, a second case is where there's a completely different family, and they have um, it's an e-commerce business it's an old line type of industry but it's it's now being executed via the internet and in this particular case their cpa who has been with them for a number of years had advised them to make certain tax elections because in making these tax elections they would have saved money on their social security taxes as owners And you say, okay, great. That sounds really good and so forth. But this advice when it comes to selling the company was fatal, absolutely fatal. And and in this particular uh, transaction, this decision to say, hey, let's save on the Social Security and we're going to make these certain elections and think how many dollars you're going to save there. The anticipated sale, uh, if it was not I'll just say reconfigured, it, it would end up being about six and a half million dollars of tax difference. Which could make or break whether you even want to sell the company. <laughs> well, you know, for some, certainly. And actually, uh, what you just said uh, reminds me of a third story. And it actually has to do with a very old line. Turns out it was waste management. And there was a, a gentleman in the Midwest who was going to sell uh, his waste management company. And the way that it was set up as an S-corp, and um, and I'll just, uh, you know, without getting into technicals regarding S-corps, but the one thing that he was kind of locked into was he had a lot of depreciated assets. Mm-hmm. And when he sold the, the company... And he was going to use a particular uh, tax election in the sale of this S Corp. He was going to experience something called recapture. And so, anyone who has invested in real estate is kind of familiar with this is 
is, you know, you have an asset that is, let's say, worth, uh, you buy it for $100 and you depreciate it uh, over the course of time by, let's say, $40. So if you sell it for more than your adjusted basis of $60, between the $60 and the $100, you're going to pay, in essence, your ordinary income rate because you've benefited from the depreciation deduction. Anyway, not to get too technical no, it's here. O- it's okay because some of these things are, I think the, the people are okay with because it's actionable. And like, there was a gentleman just as a, a, a small uh, comment on that. He was on my show, Todd, and he found out his depreciation recapture at the deal table. <laughs> so he had like a bunch of equipment. So call it, I don't know if it was for hypothetical purpose, say it was a couple million bucks. And then all of a sudden you're paying ordinary income on that that you were not aware of. <laughs> Yeah. And and it's the exact same situation. This was millions of dollars. And it turned out that the tax on the recapture was going to be $600,000. And he said to himself, why do I want to sell this thing then? Okay. And so his M&A advisor you know, came to us and we said, well, okay, look, we can restructure this in a way where you would not be subject to the recapture. You know, essentially, same transaction, but avoiding the recapture. And that was a $600,000 swing. And for this gentleman, it meant that, you know, sort of the thing you said is is that in one case, you say, I mean, another $600,000 in tax, do I really want to sell? Well, this, by just doing simple restructuring, enabled him to sidestep the tax so where he's not legally required to pay that tax, and he was in good conscience able to sell, and he lived a happy retirement. Did you create it? Was it through trust and estate planning, or was it different entities? No, or? actually, in this particular case, it it it, it did not it did not require a, a trust. It was it was actually a very simple fix, and you know, and that's the thing is is some fixes are easily done and they don't require a big structure or anything. Uh, it's and just yet, someone that is familiar with M&A that's in the tax field. <laughs> correct. Um, a, a few years ago, there was this investment advisor who had a client who had a medical devices company, and this was in California, and, and he had already sold his company. And, um, and it was after the fact that this investment advisor had his client come to me and we reviewed the situation. And it turned out that uh, this, this gentleman's CPA was unaware of an election. And it was the kind of election that we could actually do retroactively to amend a return and claim the, uh, the exclusion that was applicable in his case. And it wasn't the 338H10, was it? No, no. It turned out that it was a C corporation and it was uh, a what's called a Section 1202 exclusion of gain. Anyway, but um, (laughs) anyway, we can get into code sections really quick. Uh, (laughs) Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. in, In his case, it ended up being about one and a quarter million dollars less intact. The unfortunate thing was that he came to us a month after the statute of limitations to amend (laughs) a return. 
And the other thing, the other actually sad part about this is, is that prior to this gentleman selling this medical device company, he had asked his accountant about uh, a, a particular you know, tax saving strategy. And, and his accountant, without even investigating the strategy, told him, oh, don't you believe any of that stuff? That's a bunch of hocus pocus, uh, you know, fraud stuff. That that doesn't really work. Well, for this second uh, strategy, it does work. And as you know, that when we do planning for for business owners, uh, it, it, in certain cases we obtain an advanced ruling from the and I want IRS you to ex- on the, ex- on the, explain that because it is something that yeah. most people don't even know about. Yeah. And, and so with this gentleman's case, so far, the IRS has favorably ruled about 100 times on the situation he was inquiring about, and his accountant was just unaware. Okay. So these advanced rulings. So if someone has what's called a proposed transaction, so something uh, that they're anticipating doing, but for which the, the tax event, uh, let's say a sale, has not yet occurred, okay? And so the IRS has a process whereby you can obtain an advance ruling, and it's called a uh, private letter ruling or just a letter ruling. And, and essentially what one's uh, uh, tax advisor does is, is they whether it's a structure or it's a, or a trust, there's a copy of the trust document that goes to the IRS with a cover letter. And the cover letter outlines what the tax issues uh, uh, are uh, being asked uh, to be ruled upon. And, and so it's this tax, you know, tax character A, B, C, D, E, and so forth. And, you're saying, okay, these are the things you, you want to know for sure. And this is what we, the advisor, sees as the law that applies to the ABCD and E. Okay. And so not only will it be the Internal Revenue Code, but it will also, this letter will also reference something called the Treasury Regulation, which is how the IRS uh, implements the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, and and it goes into I'll just say great depth. They give explanations, and so if you if you think about how big the Internal Revenue Code is, which I'm going to say is big, uh, <laughs> the the Treasury regulations are about five times the volume. Okay, because again they get into examples and they provide a yeah illustrations and so on. So this ruling request goes in. And it goes into the IRS's office of chief counsel, so their top legal uh, officer, and and the chief counsel has a whole staff of attorneys whose sole function is to rule on these things, and then also to develop those regulations that implement the Internal Revenue Code. So it's going to be a, a tax attorney at the IRS who's going to be reviewing it. And what they'll do is they'll say, okay, this is what you're telling us. This is what the facts are. And the, this is what you see as the 
as the legal reasoning of why tax character A, B, C, D, and E should be the case. So they then have their own analysis. And then at the end, they say, as for tax character A you're looking for, we agree. Tax character B, we agree. Or they could say, we disagree. Now, the, and this what is all I have found before, before the transaction occurs. <laughs> right. okay? This before. is before. Yep. This is before. And, you can't, you and can't do so, this on the on the goal line, right? I mean, it's no. And 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 so this is important for the listeners to understand. It is one thing to do a transaction. You say, I think it's going to work. The the <laughs> IRS on audit does not know what your state of mind was when you did this, okay? But when someone applies for an advance ruling and they get the tax character down, they understand that your state of mind is is that you're trying to comply with the law and they're, you're asking mother, may I, okay? And so they understand you're trying to be a good guy or gal, okay? On audit, they don't really know, but when you have one of these advanced rulings, it is going to bind the IRS, as long as you haven't misrepresented the facts or anything. But the IRS is going to be bound by that ruling. They can't, on audit, if someone gets audited, with they say, no, here's the private letter ruling. <laughs> you said I could do it. And they say, oh, okay, we're good. Okay, so so that's the benefit. and and. In some cases, there are states that say, as long as the tax law in our state is substantially similar to the Internal Revenue Code, if you receive you know, what they call administrative guidance, but guidance from the IRS, like one of these rulings, if you do that, it will bind us as well, okay? And it actually works out that the state of California, uh, their chief counsel issued a notice uh, several years ago saying that if someone has a private letter ruling from the IRS and the tax law is substantially similar, it's going to apply to California as well. So, you know, some states, it depends, but in general, you know, what we do is we get this advanced ruling. And, and I should also say to, to your listeners that when you're doing this, and the IRS understands that you're trying to comply with the law, okay? You're coming ahead of time. Make sure you get it right. The, I have found, and we've done this, and I'll just say a number of times, that the IRS attorneys are very collegial. You know, when you submit it, they review your request, they give you a call. It's okay, what are we trying to do? And you say, well, we're, you know, we're trying to do this. And, and it's not, I mean, they will have seen this type of, requests come in, especially if it comes from us, is it's going to look substantially similar to the prior one we did. And so it's not going to be like, well, you know, we're doing this afresh. Okay. And so they'll say, okay, what what are we trying to do? It's okay. And they'll go through the document and we've actually had the IRS attorney say this. If you change this sentence to read this instead, we'll approve it. It's like, (laughs) They're giving you the solution. My gosh. So, <laughs> so this process is, and, and I mean, from their standpoint, okay, the, you got to think that, you know, look, every organization has constrained resources, right? 
everyone's trying to get what they need to get done in, in as efficient a manner as possible. And so from the IRS's perspective, from the Office of Chief Counsel, they're, they're looking at this transaction. And if they can tell you, look, do this, and then they give you the chance to resubmit it on the, on the, same, uh, on the same application, what happens is then is if they instead were to say, well, no, just disapprove, they don't want to have to deal with a second request and go through the whole rigmarole again. <laughs> They're saying to themselves, look, this Ooh, person fine. is trying to comply with the law. And if I can just get this thing buttoned up by just giving them the way I want the sentence to read, I'm going to give them the sentence the way it should read. Boom. And I've, I've got this matter solved. And I don't have to wait for, you know, three months down the road for them to submit a new package on the same matter. I want to get this. uh, I'm going to help them comply with the law and I'm going to move on, let them move on. And I'm going to move on as the IRS's attorney to bigger and better things. And, you know, I have to say, though, I have to say this was, oh boy, it was maybe about three or four years ago that there was, Someone who we were talking with, and this individual had an e-commerce business, it turned out, and, um, and uh, his stake in the company uh, was about $18 million, okay? And the IRS uh, charges, not us, but the IRS charges a user fee when you apply, okay? And over the course of the years, the, the dollar amount of the user fee, the IRS charges, uh, it, you know, is varied. It used to be one. Now, it's about $30,000 if the applicant's gross income is over a million dollars a year. And so you say, well, if someone's making a million dollars a year, well, and we're looking at a almost a $20 million transaction, I mean, how much grand. is yeah. 30 grand? But this particular person was like, I don't want to have to pay $30,000. And it's like, <laughs> wait a second. You, you will get certainty in your case. You will have uncertainty without it. And, and you know, sometimes, and look, every, I mean, it's not as if, you know, they're paying, you know, my team $30,000. But even no matter who the professional advisor is, is they experience it. You know, in my experience, the professional advisors, they add value to the business. And, and so in your case, I use the term best practices, but value growth, but basically helping the owner do things with their company to enhance the value. So and, on, on that and, note, Todd, like I want to kind of like, because you're, you're, this is a good, I, I want to spearhead this because when we talk about these advisors, because I think there's a, there's a big, huge challenge because, yeah, you're right. From Going from you and I both been on the owner's pers- owner side of the table, I'm now kind of on the trusted advisor side of the table where you, then you have the one kind of quarterbacking everything between the value enhancement, internal stuff, and the outside advisor stuff. But the, you know, the internal stuff, you're going, okay, I implement an ERP system. I do a quality of earnings. I do sales and CRM materials. Like I'm going to increase my multiple, right? So there's, there's a, you know, once you start focusing on value creation, you can more probably, I would say through normalized EBITDA, you could quantify the spend that you're doing. So then you got the team of advisors where I've, I, you know, the, the owner's, that I've worked with and, you know, 
I be I was very cynical myself when you and I met five years ago about how no one really did extra above and beyond work to collaborate on all the stuff that you do. So in being able to quantify, okay, I've got my lawyers, I've got my CPA, I've got my wealth, I've got my insurance, I've got estate, you know, tax, uh, asset protection, like you, you guys who technically should be, you know, spearheading the whole thing. Let's maybe take like a, a, a sample or example in how that you would chunk that off into a process to actually build the return on the value of the the proceeds, the way which you do. So, like, maybe you want to bear with me, and I can kind of give you like some of the decisions that I see owners have to make all day long. So, you have sure real estate. So, let's kind of go paint the picture of a, a typical entrepreneur, and then this is kind of based on the case studies that we have in our boot camp. But let's say you go, okay, I got a you know a couple pieces of real estate that I own that are that are getting leased to the business that I also own. Maybe you got a couple entities as well. You have assets outside the business. So you have this, these decisions. You say, okay, well, I've got different entities. You might be an S-Corp or C-Corp, an LLC. LLC as a registered S-Corp, elected as an S-Corp. You have different partnerships in these different entities. You have all of this stuff, right? And like how that whole jigsaw puzzle works, like I keep saying ripples into tax, legal, estate, and wealth. Because if people are trying to solve for annual income and say, okay, I want to solve for this much passive income, which means I have to harvest as much value out of what I have outside of the value enhancement stuff for the best practices in the business. There's all the stuff that we're talking about, right? So maybe kind of go through some of the things that pe- that you see or the decisions people might have to make of like corporate structure or like how the real estate works or how you know the the trust and estate planning works on top of it. And you don't have to go into you know major major details, but just explaining how yeah. those. What I've always tried to get across that is how interconnected all those are, and most of the time the advisors don't know how all of it works, and the owner doesn't. And so stuff gets left on the table, like you you showed me about our deal. Maybe does that make sense? Kind of the different variables. Yeah. That yeah. Okay. So uh, exactly as you said. You want to ask the question of the owner, how much annually do you really require to live on? Come up with a budget. Now, we've, <laughs> those budgets can vary greatly, but you know, we've worked up budgets for, for uh, retirees. And the basic side of you know, just sort of living uh, tends to be pretty consistent. The the big variable has to do with travel and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Is you know for most and you know some people that they're conditioned to think about you know, what their lifestyle is and how much they spend and so forth and and uh, you know but you you figure a number X that excludes travel and entertainment. What typically happens on the travel and entertainment side is, is it starts off big and then as one gets older and is probably less likely to travel, it declines. It probably uh, you know, peaks you know, around the age of 70 to 75 maybe. Uh, but then, you know, as I say, uh, by the time you get up to... Uh, 75, you start saying, well, let the kids come here for Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or by the time you get to about 80, you say, well, you know, look, I'll, 
I'll go to Yellowstone, but I'm not going to Timbuktu. And so your, your travel really uh, changes o- over time and it's quite. So, but you have that basic living component. And you, okay, but in either case, you say, how much do you really need to live on? And you come up with X dollars. And then you say, well, okay, if we have the investment professional in the picture, they're going to say, well, okay, you multiply that number by 20. So you figure about a 5% distribution of, of whatever dollars you have uh, is going to equal X. So now what's happening is you're backing into what we call the required capital mm-hmm. amount. And so if we were to say, and I'm just going to pull out the, some numbers, if, if we were to say that someone's number is, and I'm just saying $100,000 a year, we'll multiply that by 20 and you need $2 million of required capital. If the number uh, is, I was going to say what the, what the in the presentation I give in on our it's, it, the five principles like the financial targets principle is reverse back into two hundred grand you need five million bucks net because okay. we, we do the and, four we do four percent but not we okay. it's like just like just basic yeah, like you said yeah. concepts and, and I was gonna say if if you needed two hundred and fifty thousand you need five million if you use mm-hmm. a four percent distribution rate and you feel your target is two hundred yeah. Yep, but yep. same same concept. Whichever you want to use a four percent, five percent, you yeah, figure yeah. out what it's that annual years. budget is. Multiply it. That's your required capital amount. Okay. Everything above that is excess capital. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's excess capital. And the question from a planning perspective is: is well, what are you going to do with that? Okay. And so, if you were to say that the owner retires at 65 years old, and let's pretend that, uh, that she's this business owner, she's going to live another 25 years. Well, and sh- she's not going to draw on this excess capital. It's just going to grow and grow and grow. Well, how that's much without is... That's touching the principle. I mean, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> what... Yeah, you, the required capital is what you're going to draw from. This is excess capital. Mm-hmm. And so if you are, are saying that this is going to grow over... 25 years, I mean, uh, if you simply assume a moderate uh, rate of return of, let's say, 7%, that's going to go, is going to go eight, uh, multiply eight times. So if your excess capital it ends up being $5 million, you're going to have $40 million. Well, I'm going to tell you that doing estate tax planning for $5 million is a heck of a lot easier than doing it for $40 million. Okay. And so, the earlier you do the planning, the less of a problem it is, right? So well, this is a this is a concept. Well, and then I, I think about okay, so you're you're totally right, and this is exactly where our framework goes. And then now think about where your expertise comes into play. Like once they have the like the outside edges of the puzzle like that, then they say, okay, yep. now I've got three entities. And then I've got real estate, and I've got all these yes. tw- these things that are inside that, which usually are not just a 401k that's illiquid, right? <laughs> or that that's li- liquid, right? This is complicated stuff that gets yes. the ability to, you know, that excess capital when we're trying to solve for that 5 million bucks. Like when you had talked about the, th- I don't know if it was a 338 H10 or the Ning at our point, like it, there was stuff that was millions of dollars that would have gone into our net proceeds into that framework, which yeah. would allow us to have different decisions 
from the exit options from family transition to ESOP, the private equity recap, and how much you need yeah. up front. So kind of explain how like yeah that ripple okay. effect happens from all that stuff. So so again, we're we're working back in time. We're starting out with with where the person needs to end up. And we're going back in time to say, now what needs to happen in order to get there? What it's sort of like is, is something that Wayne Gretzky, the hockey great, said. He is going to skate to where the puck is going to be, okay? And what we need to do is, is we, by asking the, the business owner, where is it that you want to be? We're saying, where's your puck going to be? And then how do we need to skate to get to where the puck's going to be? Okay. And so once we have all of this financial stuff set up, we now have to go in and see two things. On one hand, the operational stuff, which is what your team does. They go in and they say, look, we, you know, whether it's, inventory policy or this or that or CRM or whatever it is, the operational thing. Then on our side, we talk about the structural things. Mm-hmm. And, and so, for example, if someone has an S corporation, and I'm just going to say that the, the days of needing an S corporation as such are behind us. The tax court has ruled that on the key benefits that an S-Corp has are experienced by LLC that are taxed as partnerships. So there's a way to get the S-Corp benefits, uh, and we won't get into those specifically. So, But the challenge with, with an S-Corp is that it has certain restrictions to it and certain benefits that an LLC would have certain tax elections that LLCs have that are simply unavailable as an escort. Well, I mentioned... That, as I say, if you can, I want to go back and make sure you kind of list a couple of these because I want to really just hit, hammer this point home because also when we, because when you going back to our principles, one is the drivers, second one is your financial targets, which we just talked about. And then the third one is the exit options, which is where's the puck going to be? And yep. so like in that situation, and if you want to kind of just, as you continue your example, like if you wanted to do an ESOP, you, they're, they're, whether you have a C corp or an S corp might make a difference and they can't, you can't do a, an, an ESOP with an LLC. So all these decisions you have to back into to, oh, weigh, yeah. to weigh today and an, today's annual tax burden versus the final exit. And so maybe just, just keep that in light as I, I always, I'm kind of constantly just hammering that because people make those decisions without thinking about where the puck's going to be. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to go back to an example that I, I mentioned earlier, but before, before I do that, I want to relate a, a story that a few years ago, there was this person who said to me that, and he's sort of a tech guy, there should be some algorithm that <laughs> you know, we should be able to just plug stuff in and, and you know, a number pops out. And I said, it's not that easy. He says, no, this, this should all oh, be easy. Come on. We can do this with happiness and emotions too. <laughs> okay. And, and so this example will illustrate why it's not just this simple cookie cutter process. 
This example that I'm going to go back to shows exactly why everything has to be tailored. And it's not just, oh, you know, we just you know, run through stuff, cut and dry. Okay. So I mentioned that uh, more recently there was this old line uh, industry that the owner has uh, uh, implemented via e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And he has an LLC that his uh, accountant uh, years ago had recommended they be treated for tax purposes as a corporation and then make an S-corp election. Now, this particular company through e-commerce has sales in many, many, many states, okay? Mm -hmm. And because of a particular ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court several years ago, uh, as the seller, he has a duty to collect and then pay sales tax on his sales in all of these different states. Okay, he accepts it. He knows this is something I got to do. Well, when there's a buyer, okay, and the buyer is doing their due diligence on a company, and they're going to see, among other things, they're going to see, oh, you pay sales tax, and you pay sales tax in 45 states. Oh, well, it's great that this company we're going to buy has sales in all these states. But what we're not certain about is whether you have correctly paid and filed the sales tax returns with these 45 states, okay? And if we buy your entity, it's the entity that is on the hook. And if we buy the entity, we're going to be on the hook. But if we just buy your assets instead of buying the entity, which is, and this is kind of why like 95% or so of all sales are asset sales, is one of the reasons is is the the buyer doesn't want to inherit the entity's liabilities. And so it's not just the sales tax. It's going to be, well, what about the employment taxes? Okay. And what about anything else? And here's another one is for those uh, companies out there, let's say they're a roofing company, just as an example, or they make a product. Is there a, a, a warranty? liability. So it, usually companies that uh, fabricate or, or install will have a fund that they keep uh, to deal with warranty work, you know, whether it's labor to fix the, the one roofing tile that mm-hmm. didn't work or whatever it is. But usually they, they have to keep, if they're in gap uh, compliance, they usually have to keep a, a fund uh, for, for those warranty cases. Well, they don't want to have to inherit the warranty issues, okay? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of reasons, incentives, why the buyer doesn't want an entity sale. They want to have an asset sale. And so in this particular case, in this particular case, going back to the e-commerce, this is the situation. And so we've told the owner, you know, because of all of these due diligence issues, the likelihood is you're going to have an asset sale. Now, the problem with the asset sale is, is there are going to be certain elections that affect your tax status of how that uh, gain is going to be taxed, whether it's going to be subject to state-level income tax or if we can remove it to the, as I say, tax-friendly state of Nevada. And there's ways to do it with this IRS 
private letter ruling process I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Okay. And whether there may be, if you have depreciated assets, whether there's going to be recapture or not, and so on. But the problem with the, with the LLC having had this S-Corp election is you can't, you can't take advantage of the planning techniques. You can't, period. <laughs> you're dead. And you're going to be, you will suffer, and I'm going to use that word, suffer the full brunt of taxation on that sale. You're going to pay state-level income tax. You will not have the opportunity to legally sidestep state-level income tax, and you will experience recapture, period. Okay? So uh, now the good news... All of that instead of capital gains with a stock sale. And pure capital gain treatment, okay? And the the elimination, the legal elimination of state-level income tax. And so now the good news is, is this particular owner has the site set on three well three years out well we can go ahead and correct these structural issues and i'm going to tell you you can't put this stuff into an algorithm okay you can't put this into like TurboTax and figure it out these these are this is engineering at its greatest subjective I mean. issues the that uh, how a whether one entity can have an election or not it's just too complex. Well, and if you think about what, like, kind of like, especially the fact that he's one to, you know, one to three years out, so he can pre-plan all this stuff. But then also, yeah, when you have the difference of like, okay, I'm marching towards, I want to do an ESOP, but maybe you get the out of the blue offer, right? And it might be from a PE firm or strategic buyer, and what they want might be different. So, like, maybe explain how the real estate or different entities impact the estate plan and the exit. Oh, uh, sure. So, so just because like you're, so, you're talking about the corporate structure and the asset versus and like some of the stuff, but like thinking about where you want to go and knowing that there's like, because your examples, there was one LLC elected as an S, but they could have multiple entities and multiple oh, pieces sure. of real estate that the real estate might be owned by the entity or not. I, the, I, the, the point I'm trying to get across is that you're going back to the excess capital and advanced t- yeah. tax planning and estate planning in light of, you know, how do you optimize this in light of where you're trying to go with the puck? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> it, it's a lot of these subjective considerations. So one of the things, one of the things that, as you've just mentioned, that, that we often see in so many businesses is that the real estate is peeled off and held in a separate entity. And, and now, now, so with the advent of this new Internal Revenue Code Section 199A that allows certain businesses to receive a, a reduction in taxable income. And so, but certain, certain industries are, um, are phased out very, very quickly. And so what some, what some businesses have done is, is, They've stripped off their non-core employees, and they form a second entity to handle all of their, you know, back office people, so to speak, their administrative people. So, if it's HR, if it's uh, you know, financial systems and so forth, administration, they they peel that off from the operations. Because as administrative functions, those are not subject to this limitation on the 199A deduction. And so not that we're going to 
talk about, well, how do you exploit the 19098? The, the real point is, is that some business entities might find themselves very easily with three entities, okay? One is doing the operations, one that has the administrative support personnel, and then a third one that holds the real estate. So my point is, is mm-hmm. each, each company one might talk with might in fact have multiple entities for the, for the same reasons. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in, in effect, under the same umbrella. Okay. And so now the question becomes, well, now how do you structure all those? Okay. How do you structure all those? I, I would say is in the same way that knowing the ins and outs of with this one uh, e-business, the, the sort of the subjective things that come into play regarding S-Corporation, the same sort of art to understand how things can be structured, or if you're going to use it, it really is best structured this way. And the only thing I can say is it, it's more of an art rather than a science. There, there are these technical rules, but the question is, is you know, how do you, how do you apply them? And so, yeah, there's this internal revenue code section that says, well, if your entity is categorized like this, it'll work this way. And it's like, well, but now how do we apply that? To and the, the rip and the, the, I call it the ripple effect, right? To everything else yeah. that you have going on, because yeah. like in in and I like when you think about what you're talking about as you're structuring this stuff for the eventual sale. One and you know my my imagery brain i think about like estate planning as the wrapper around your ultimate goal because like you know you're dealing with the the taxes annually then at the sale and then also post closing or transition where like i i mean i i've talked to plenty of people or you know that are you know whether the 1031 exchange comes into play or like you know a 1031 exchange and i'll be doing a a podcast soon about this about 1031 into an opportunity zone because you're constantly deferring these taxes, but the estate plan's a wrapper around all that. So instead of just doing that stuff in pockets, it's about like, you know, your whole thing of asset protection by understanding how all these variables work. And I just see too many times, I don't know if you got any comments on that, but I just, people just making those things in just complete, you know, vacuums without understanding the ripple effect. Well, and, you know, and I guess part of the challenge is is whether the professionals serving the the business owner are are even aware of benefits or yeah I'll use the term benefit mm-hmm. uh, tax benefits that uh, apply in certain situations I mentioned the medical device thing and it was a statutory provision where this person could exclude some of their gain it had been a startup and blah 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 but the tax professional was simply not aware. And the, the sort of the, the example I like to give is, is if you have, and let's just say uh, a, a residential rental, you know, just a single family house that you're renting, okay? And you go to your accountant and you say, you know, I have to replace my water heater and furnace in this rental. Uh, what can I do with that? And, and the question is, is whether it's going to be uh, characterized as a repair or uh, a replacement, in which case it would be a capital um, 
a capital investment versus uh, a maintenance item. Okay, so that's the first thing. But if it's a capital expenditure, can this thing called the 179 deduction be applied or must it be depreciated? And over what period of time? Okay, your average CPA, I'd like to call your mom and pop CPA, they're going to know that question down cold because they probably get that question 20 or 30 times a year. Okay? But then ask the question, I'm going to sell a 20, 30, $40 million company. What do I need to do to minimize my taxes? <laughs> if they have one of them in their entire career, they're lucky. Okay? They, it's just not a question that's posed to them on a regular basis. Now, I'm not you know, citing fault. I'm just citing the reality is for your average CPA, how many times are they going to be asked to do tax planning for a 20 or $30 million company? Okay. Oh, they may be doing the taxes, the income tax for it. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the tax planning unique to the M&A environment, and that they don't. And even, I will say, and, and this is, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to sort of state how things are, and I'm not trying to be critical, but even many professionals in the, uh, in the M&A environment are not the ones who say, I need to keep learning, keep learning, keep learning. A lot of them are just, I've got my meal ticket, and they just sort of go along. And, and they're not exposed to new ideas that maybe have been around for a long time. So like this, this particular trust that I mentioned where we can move the effective tax jurisdiction to Nevada from wherever the client is for the sale. Uh, you know, I said the IRS has made probably about 100 positive rulings on these structures. And these structures have been around for you know over 20 years. So we really have a good idea how these work, that they're going to get approved, and that they're going to be respected. But ask the, the, the broad uh, population of uh, professionals, even professionals in M&A, and they're probably not going to be familiar with it. Because well, it's because Todd, like, and you're, yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's why, like, in our boot camp, we have like literally, how do you hire the right people in each of these different designations? Is like the conversations that we've been having does ripple into legal, tax, wealth, and M and A. It's it's like one conversation of should I do my ESOP today or not impacts your deal structure, your corporate structure, your taxes, your wealth plan. I mean, your real estate, is it going to be included in the real estate? And it's so much stuff that not a lot of people, I kind of think about it as like, you know, when you're building a house and the general contractor, you know, all the different contractors have a general idea of how the how are the buildings getting built, but someone's in charge of coordinating all that stuff because they have an understanding of how everybody else works. Yeah. This is like everybody trying to build a house or a building without having any idea what the blueprint or the budget is. I mean, it just, it it just, which the chances of disaster because the owner in turn by not doing this stuff is, is choosing to be that general contractor and architect, whether they like it or not. (laughs) Yeah. And in a way, in a way, a business owner's decision to defer planning instead of doing it now is, I mean, a, a de facto 
being the general contractor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it's a decision they're making to keep things as they are, to not change the porch or change this bedroom or something in the, in the uh, business. And then the out of the blue offer comes and you're stuck with the decisions that you have made regarding your business. And so by choosing to defer planning, you've assumed the general contractor role. And, and so to that point, this goes back about four years. Someone that I know had a retail sports operation, pretty good size, revenue about 50 million a year, had multiple uh, retail locations. And, um, and so he had said, and this was just in a social context, we're sitting, sitting at, at a bar at a social setting and just chit chatting. And so he says, this, you know, same thing. Okay, sell three to five years. Okay. And so someone else had been talking with them about um, accounting systems and, and whatnot. And so I had, and I'm not in the business and selling accounting software, I'll say, but I had suggested that he look into a particular type of, of accounting system. And he says, oh, that's good. And I said, and if you implement this particular type of software, the likelihood is, is you're going to get a little bit of a pop on your sale price if, if you get it executed properly. And uh, okay, great. Well, two weeks later, he comes in out of the blue offer by one of the people or entities he thought was a likely buyer for his because there's only so many in this particular field. But anyway, he he said he got an out of the blue offer. Well, so his company was sold as it was, and had he you know put this software package in, the likelihood is is he would have got a pop and probably in his case it would have been worth maybe about a million and a half bucks. So that's that's not really related to tax, but the point is still made is is what happens, what's the net effect of the business owner saying, well I'm just gonna put this stuff off. And oh, the yeah, answer you're, is is you're, you're, you're solving you're for... the general contractor. Right. And you know what I've yeah this uh I've been gravitating towards this phrase now of the you're choosing to solve for annual income instead of solving for value creation on your net worth and on your business. So if you, if you, yeah. if you shift that mindset, which is literally going like from two dimensional to three dimensional thinking, then you're solving for value creation. So outside of the business stuff too, and we kind of to wrap this in and kind of bring this full circle is as we look at the advisors and what you were talking about from the operational and the structural things in light of those financial targets of, your, you know, the capital you need, the income you need, and then the excess. Is there things that when you're looking at these decisions that of ways that people can say, okay, my advisor's creating, there's a return on investment of this planning fee or this estate fee or this tax planning fee, because knowing that I've, you know, gone through the due diligence of hiring the advisors that get this shit, (laughs) then how can you say, okay, this is the return on the investment that I should get? Because in one last before you answer is that when I see this stuff, Todd, like because I understand the world that we've been talking about, when I hear someone explain their back end structures, I cringe because I know what was lost by not the lost opportunity. But you almost it's hard to compare because the the situation never happened. Like you didn't have apples, you know, you didn't have the comparison of yeah, sure. what you just said of like if you would have done the ERP system here, 
Like in this situation with the team of advisors, and they're looking to hire the people, and like, what is it that they should be asking or quantifying as far as paying the one the people one to three years out before that eventual eventual triggering point? Well, so here's this is a I mean the simplest simplest example. Okay, so let's take you. Okay, you're going to be this business owner's advisor. And let's say it's a $20 million revenue company, okay? And you say, I'm going to increase your net margin by 1%, one rotten, stinking percent. And the owner is going to say, well, what 1%? Are you kidding me? How much am I going to pay you? Okay. And so, but let's think about this a second. On $20 million, that means an increase of annual cash flow of $200,000. Now multiply by a real conservative so five, five time multiple. <laughs> not, five not times. <laughs> you're talking a million dollars in value creation. Mm-hmm. That's what the rotten, stinking 1% translates to. And so you go in and you say, well, all, all I'm going to do, I'm not going to do anything more, is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand your net margin by 1%. And again, the business owner on the surface is going to say, well, I'm not going to pay you for that. Oh, but then part two is, the second shoe to drop is, is but then that's worth a million dollars to you. So maybe as a professional, my fee is, well, I mean, I've got to believe that's going to be, you know, uh, I don't know what your fee structure is, but I would say it's going to be multiple, multiple. Okay, something as it, and then then the next thing is, well, but what if it's two percent instead of just one? Product? Well, I think on Todd on, on the on the cash okay. flow and the multiple that that is, I mean, that's been kind of our our approach, and I think you you can. Because we're bringing in both the value enhancement strategies and then also the team of advisors, helping them build that. So, like then on the team of advisors, the outside, like the tax, wealth, the the legal, your kind of skill sets. How do you do that? Because it's, it might not be directly cash flow or multiple related, but it's more the deal. Sure, that makes sense. So, how do you do? How do you approach that same thing on yeah. your side, knowing that like. You know, when people say like, because I didn't know we left money on the table until talking to you, then I'm like, well, shit, I wish I would have spent X to get a million dollar return. Does that make sense? You know, the it's it's difficult. Okay, it's difficult. So many times, as I mentioned before, that so many professional advisors like to work as as a silo, and so one of the things often is the case, and well. Often is the case is, is we get in there and because we would set up a trust structure to be the owner of the company, well, now the trust is paying the tax, income tax on the net income. And it, so the, the trust, us as trustees, we need kind of need to know, well, how's the accounting going on inside the company? Mm-hmm. And when we start looking at that, so many times, these, these business owners, they've started out with their old-time CPA, the mom-and-pop CPA, and maybe things aren't really done that right. And yet, you end up... So the gentleman that I said that had the, the sport uh, retail shops, this guy still had, at $50 million of revenue, he still had his mom-and-pop CPA 
looking at the books and and doing the tax returns. He did not step up in in level to you know a professional who would be there. And so this mom and pop is going to be a little resistant. Well, what do you mean I'm doing things wrong? Well, yeah, your revenue recognition is wrong. This is mm-hmm. wrong. I mean, we don't want to be in a position to make anyone you know look bad. But this is this is what happens. And so the, the so I bring this up is is the business owner really needs to understand that that this interplay is essential because now what happens is is what if something going on with just the accounting inside the business is not exactly right, which then compromises the the, the tax structure that yeah. we've put in place? Okay, and and anyway, I mean it it just it's in a way it's hard to explain because the nuances are so subtle, but just in this example, very expensive though. What if the way that your accountant is representing, you know, the, the income and this and that, what if somehow that compromises the tax structure that we put in? Mm -hmm. Okay. Or what if, we put the structure in and you say to your investment person, whoever that is, is, well, we need a distribution of this. Well, there's a formality of how you get the money. There's a, there's a mechanical route. And if your investment advisor just says, cut you a check and says it, it can compromise. So everyone does need to play together. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, I have to apologize because again, these nuances can be so subtle that you just don't think about this. And, and, you know, I always tell the families we serve, it's not like I'm this obsessive compulsive guy who likes to line up my pencils all in a straight row on my desk. Okay. Certain things have to be a certain way or everything gets compromised, not only from a tax perspective, but from an asset protection perspective. Is, is there's the form and there's the substance and both need to be there. And, and one thing that one professional is doing can absolutely undermine what everyone else in the picture is doing. So everyone needs to know that they're part of a team. And, and in some cases, you know, the professional needs to subordinate themselves mm-hmm. to that team. And not well. I'm just gonna, you know. To the how picture, dare you say? How dare go. you say I'm? My revenue recognition is incorrect. Well, it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I don't want. Again, I don't want to make anyone look bad, but, but you know, that's the thing. And um, <laughs> is, but I think it's different uh, to your point. Is like once, once you have the blueprint and you understand where you're going. It's just like the the puck. If you know where you're going to the puck, then everybody can ebb and flow to who's needed at the moment to solve for that puck. I mean, otherwise, yeah. and that's what kind of goes back to the whole point of this entire show and this episode is that if the owner understands, so the listeners that are thinking about this stuff, and it looks like a lot, it's understanding what you want and what you're trying to solve for from the dollars, from the essentially the five principles, then they literally can... Watch because you know, here, here's my kind of my final takeaway, Todd, and then we can kind of uh, wrap it up and give you the listeners your contact information. It's like, if sure. the owner understands what they want, they're 
they're good at hiring people for the most part, right? I mean, yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's pros and cons and there's, you know, trials of in tribulations of not hiring the right person. But you can, instead of trying to be as smart as your tax attorney or your CPA or your wealth advisor, if you understand what good looks like, then you can hire the right people because you know where you're trying to get to and how they're responding to even that situation that you just brought up, right? If someone responds and they, I mean, like you just said, and they got all defensive, you know that they're probably not either wrong or they're either wrong or they don't know how to be wrong, which is a problem regardless. So I don't know like, if you, you got any comments on that and explaining you know, how you're maybe kind of get explain your team, how do you fit into that and what the, the best way to get in touch with you is? Okay. So, um, I guess, you know, fundamentally each professional advisor needs to subordinate themselves to the overall team and, and no one, uh, can accept that they're always right. Okay. Baseball. Great. Ted Williams is the only player ever to hit 400 in a season and yet he only 400. hit 400 okay? <laughs> right. okay he only had an on-base percentage of 500 okay so no one out there is perfect so each person has to accept that there's something they don't know or maybe something they're doing wrong it goes back to that lifelong learning concept rather than i got my meal ticket mm-hmm. so if someone is committed to a team and they're willing to subordinate themselves, admit that they could be wrong, okay? Be open to other ideas and then fairly deliberate what those uh, ideas might be, okay? Then you're serving your client, okay? That's mm-hmm. the key. So, um, but in, in all of this, you know, you said, uh, you know, put out my contact information. Uh, I have a lot of information, articles, and so forth on my Forbes column. So if anyone were to simply do an internet search on Todd Ganos, P-O-D-D-G-A-N-O-S, and then Forbes, uh, you'll find my, my column, and we talk about a lot of these topics. Uh, someone can also go to our website, which is integratedwealth.com, integratedwealth.com, and my email is Todd, T-O-D-D, at integratedwealth.com. Todd, it's been so much fun having you back on the show. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the passion and the, and the, the mission that you're on because I think we're, we're all, it takes everybody to try and solve this big problem. Well, great. Uh, it's always uh, great talking with you. We, uh, we've had some pretty lively conversations over the years offline <laughs> and uh, always interesting. So uh, thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me. If there's one big takeaway I hope you had from this episode is that you don't have to be an expert in all the different strategies from legal to tax to estate planning to deal structures. Your main goal as an owner is to hire the right people and get people next to you that are the smartest in their field, that don't have big egos, that know how to collaborate. And if they don't know an answer to a question, they're going to collaborate with the other designations and then they're going to go find the different ways that they can help you optimize your plan. It is literally one of the most refreshing and magical things watching people collaborate around you 
on your behalf, knowing that they have your best interest and that you don't have to worry about learning all this stuff. I think I used to be so stressed because I felt like I needed to be the expert because I didn't trust the people around me and it caused me anxiety, the opportunity to pocket millions of dollars more and to get a different outcome. So the goal is now before you pull the ripcord years before, start building your team around you so you can optimize your plan. And again, check out one of our boot camps, two days, 5,000 bucks based on two case studies and it's a deep dive on how to grow the value of your company dives into valuations and how to understand your net proceeds, understanding all the different exit options as it relates to your valuation and what you want as a exit, and then how to hire your team. It's absolutely life-changing. You can talk to different people that have been to it. They walked out with a complete clarity on what to do next as it relates to their business, their target valuation, their target exit. So with that being said, I hope you can Stay tuned for the next episode where we're going to be diving into how to use real estate as a mechanism to better increase your odds to get the exit that you want.